We're in a book called 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul to a church that's gone a little wayward, a young church, and he's addressing a number of issues. And we're in chapter 9 today, uh, looking at sentences nine, uh, 19 through 27. I'll be on the screen behind me as well. It says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more, more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though, myself, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Do you not know that in a race that all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I I myself should be disqualified. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, My name's Jeremy. I'm one of the the leaders here at church. Thanks for being here with us this afternoon, especially if you are new to church. And uh, I hope as we move through uh, this book and this passage uh, that uh, that who Jesus is will become clear to you and the impact that it has to know him and to follow him. Um, Thanks as well to Liv and Lydia for uh, the interview before. It was great to hear about that. I think probably the most unbelievable thing about the interview um, was that anyone could miss the weather in the Pacific Northwest. Sorry it's 20 degrees in winter here in Australia. We fully apologise. But um, look, it's, uh, it's um, been a great series to head through, moving through Corinthians. And as we come towards the second kind of half, the later part of the book, um, the writer of the letter Paul starts to switch gears toward this theme of love and laying down our lives. And as we look at this one, and at the purpose that the gospel gives us, uh, there, is an, there are a few interesting questions to ask. Uh, recently, so there's a bunch of us in our, uh, at City Light, we meet in small groups called missional communities, and, uh, and our missional community is looking to do a Tough Mudder coming up in, uh, in November. Now, the mild giggling gives me an indication that some people know what it is, but just to let me know, who actually knows, so I know how much to explain, who knows what Tough Mudder is? All right. So if you, if you don't know what it is, for the uninitiated... It's basically, you know when you're a kid and you did novelty races that were like egg and spoon and that kind of stuff? Well, this is like a grown-up version of that. But instead of like sack races and egg and spoon and three-legged races, there's like ice bars and electric shocks and, like, and all that kind of gear. So it's, it's very similar except more like deadly. And so, um, but in, uh, but in thinking about it, we're, we're going to pull together a, a running group to do that as a, as a crew, which should be fun. You're welcome to join us. But um, I don't know if you've noticed, but a bunch of these kind of um, extreme marathons have started to pop up. It's almost become a bit of a, a genre. There's other ones called Spartan and a whole bunch of others that have started to emerge. And I guess it's come out of the idea that um, running is agonizingly boring and a marathon is just a lot of running back to back. So how do you make it more interesting? Well, like you put your life and health on the line at the same time. It makes it exciting. But it's not, it's not alone in terms of the, the kind of emergence of like adrenaline or extreme sports are just, it's kind of exponential. They're popping up everywhere. They're all over the place. 
There are things like extreme cheese rolling, as if there needed to be an extreme version. But anyway, they just put it at the front of it. But this is a race that they have in Scotland where they literally roll a wheel of cheese down a hill and people just hurl themselves after it, breaking collarbones and backs and all kinds of things to get to the bottom of the, the hill first, right? The uh, wingsuiting is another one where people jump out of planes and basically try to act like some kind of a flying squirrel or something in these suits and, and literally fly as a person. But probably my favourite is, and I'm, I hope someone else has seen this as well, is chess boxing. Has anyone seen chess boxing? So this is what, what I imagine someone just sat down and thought, what is both the most and the least nerdiest things I can think of? And I'll put them together in the same ring. So they are literally in a boxing ring, and you'll have a round of chess. And I think it's a to- Originally, I thought the way it worked was you'd play chess, and if you're losing, you could just throw a few haymakers. But the way it works is you have a round of chess and then followed by a round of boxing. And the idea is that, like, the boxing's meant to, like, I don't know, you've got to have to concentrate because then you go back to... I don't, look, in the end, somebody just... It would have been a, a drunken bet, I'm sure. That's how it really started. But anyway, the, um, the emergence of, like, extreme sports is interesting to think about, though. Because it's not everywhere, is it? It hasn't been that throughout all centuries that extreme sports have been popular. In fact, these kind of activities were really reserved for kind of circus or novelty acts, you know, a hundred years ago. I mean, that was the right space for them. Knife throwing, all that kind of stuff. Any kind of adrenaline sport was more of like in the freak show category, something that people would pay a ticket to go and watch rather than to participate on on a mass scale. More than that, they've only really emerged in affluent cultures. So it seems to be the luxury of a culture that's got a lot of time and money to do these sort of things. And why? I reckon it's because of this. Ravi Zacharias, one philosopher, says, I'm absolutely convinced that meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves emptied of meaning with our pantries still full. His reflection on Western affluent culture and affluent cultures in other cities as well is that meaninglessness comes from when we have too much stuff. And the emergence of extreme sports is surely a response to that. We've got all this stuff, we've got all this time, we've got all these things, but we're bored. How do you make them more interesting? Well, you make them dangerous. You make them kind of adrenaline-evoking. You make them interesting again by making them kind of life-threatening. So the truth is, in countries where survival is an everyday reality, extreme sports are nowhere on the radar. But in countries where that question is completely gone from everyday life, suddenly an extreme sport seems interesting or even enticing. And I think it is because we're bored and some danger makes us feel alive again. It maybe brings back some meaning to life. Because our lives are full of stuff but empty of meaning. Our pantries are full but we have nothing to eat. Our cupboards are full, but we feel like we've got nothing to wear. Our schedules are full, but we feel like we've got nothing to do. We need something, a greater purpose to drive our lives. And what Paul, the writer of this letter, is saying in 1 Corinthians 9 is that once you understand the gospel of Jesus, you have a very clear and all-encompassing and engrossing purpose to life. And it's a purpose that isn't boring because it's not about me and my wants and what I can get out of things but how it is that I might lay down my life for others in the same way that Jesus has laid his life down for me. And we're going to see that the freedom of the gospel 
is not the freedom to be more and more about me, but the freedom to be a servant of all and to see as many people come to know the hope and joy of Jesus as possible before he takes us home. And so whether you're here and investigating Jesus, skeptical about him or a follower of him, really what we'll see today is that the gospel message is clear and it gives a clear purpose to life. We are free to be servants of all. And I'm going to pray that we'd see exactly that as we dig into uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the God who has made us, who gives life purpose and meaning, who has designed us and has designed this universe. We just pray that we would see in 1 Corinthians 9 the truth of the gospel and how it comes to bear on our lives, that we might want to live lives laid down for you, that we might see the wonder of the cross, the blood of Christ poured out for us and be moved to lay down our lives for others in the same way. And Father, we pray that you would do this, that you would be glorified in your church. Amen. Well, this letter, 1 Corinthians, as we've mentioned you know, over a few weeks, is written by a guy called Paul who hated Christians and then became a Christian. He set his life to murder, imprison, beat, intimidate, torture Christians And one day on his road to Damascus, when he was going to imprison and beat and torture more Christians, he was confronted by Jesus, came to know him, and became a follower of him. Then he he preached the gospel in Jerusalem, which was his hometown, was kicked out of there, moved up through Syria, through Turkey, across over to Macedonia, and down through to the bottom of Greece, and finally got to this place called Corinth, where he planted a church. Then he went back to visit all the other churches because they're all being persecuted for becoming Christians. And on the way, about a year and a half later, he hears that things aren't going very well back at Corinth. So he sends this letter, hence it's called 1 Corinthians because it's the first letter to this Corinthian church, to address a whole bunch of the issues that they've been facing. And the issue that we saw last week was that this new church had emerged out of a culture that was steeped in temple worship. In Corinth, many of them worshipped idols at temples. And part of the culture of it was that you would have a meal there, and if you ate meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, the belief was that the idol, that God, was now a part of that meat, and if you ate it, it's like you were becoming one with that deity. And many of them who became Christians came to realize that Jesus was the one and only God, that these idols were just statues, they were false gods, they were nothing. And so some of them were saying, look, you can eat that meat, it's not a problem. Why does it matter? There's only one real God, the others are just fake gods. But others in the church who had come out of these religions were saying, in good conscience, I can't eat that meat. I I can't go back, that's the religion I turned my back on to follow Christ. And Paul had said to this group of people, look, you guys who are more mature, you might have been Christians for longer, and you understand that there's only one God, he's saying, don't look down on on your brothers. If, if it causes them to stumble that you eat this meat sacrifice to idols, don't do it. For the sake of loving them, don't do it. And the thing that he's continuing on now is, for the sake of others, we might miss out on things so that we can serve them better. But he starts it last week with the church, and this week he moves on to those who don't yet know Jesus. And look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1-4. Paul, talking about himself, says... Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not our, my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Paul says, first and foremost, he says, I am free. Knowing Jesus means he is set free. And specifically saying he's set free from religious customs and laws. He's saying if you actually come to know Jesus, you know that what makes you right with God is not that you, you ticked some religious list or you did the right things, but you believe that Jesus died in your place and his blood took the penalty for your sins. So you're now made right with God by nothing that you have done. He says, I'm free from all. I don't have to follow these religious laws. And he goes on to say, am I not an apostle? Now, apostle just literally meant a a sent one. So the word post or postal, we get it from the same Greek word. And the reason they were called that was because Jesus sent them out. So he sent out a bunch of his, his apostles. And one of the things that he mentions here is he says, have I not seen the Lord? Because to be an apostle, you had to be a witness to the resurrection. So the belief was, in order to have a credible case to say that Jesus is God, that he really rose from the dead, that it's not just a superstition, but it really happened, then you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus. And he had done that. So he's saying, look, am I not an apostle? Am I not a bona fide, real gospel apostle who's been set free? And he says, even so, I have more than anyone. I know that I have the right to eat and drink, and yet he's just said he laid it aside for us. But then he goes on to say, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, about other things that he has missed out on for the sake of loving other people. It says, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Kephas? So if you are with us a few months back, you would have seen in, in, in chapter 7, Paul talks about his singleness for the gospel. That he, unlike many of the other apostles, didn't have a wife. He says here, the brothers of the Lord. So in the, in the Bible, you have the books of James and the books of Jude. They were both Jesus' actual brothers. And they believed in him and his testimony and ended up dying following the, uh, Christ. But he says, look, they have wives. Kephas, who is Peter, who is the leader of this group of apostles, also did. So there's nothing wrong with having a wife. But he says, but for him... He has actually set that aside and he has decided to be single for the gospel. But more than that, he goes on to say he's laid down other good things and rights. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6 to 12, he says this, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some, some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul and Barnabas were missionaries who went out with the gospel, and he says they were not paid for it. They worked as they went. And he's saying here it's not a bad thing to take a wage. He's saying the other apostles have done it. It's not a bad thing. In fact, he'll go on to say that Jesus commands it. When he talks about all this stuff about sheep and oxen, he's referring back to the Old Testament, where those who served full-time in the Lord's ministry were supported by God's people. And Paul is saying that they, they didn't do it. He hasn't taken a wife, he hasn't, uh, so he hasn't got married, he hasn't uh, taken a wage. And why is it? Why is it that he hasn't done these things? Well, we see in the next section, 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 12-14, Paul writes, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul is saying, look, Jesus has commanded it, the other apostles are doing it, but he and Barnabas decided to lay aside that right. It was fine for them to take a wage, but they decided not to. Why? He says, because we didn't want to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel. See, what was different about Paul and Barnabas' ministry as opposed to the other apostles? What was the one thing that set them apart from the others? In the book of Acts, where we get the story of the early church, we see that Paul and Barnabas were set aside to go and reach Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people. All the others built up the church and spread the gospel message among other people from their nation. But these guys were the first to go out from them and to plant churches and to spread the gospel in areas where no one was Jewish and no one had heard of Jesus. And Paul says, for the sake of that ministry, so that we put no obstacle in the way of the gospel, they decided to just work. He was a tent maker, so he worked as a tent maker and shared the gospel in his spare time. Not that he couldn't have, not that it was a bad thing that he would do it, but for the sake of the gospel, he didn't. A few years ago, we met some missionaries who were working in a closed country. And so it was, it was illegal to share the gospel there. And it was illegal, obviously, for that reason, to go to that, that country for the intent and purpose of sharing the gospel. So what they decided to do was they worked in industries or, or in, uh, in companies that had offices in that part of the world. And so they went over there. They just took a transfer as part of their work to head over to that region so that their, main, their visa for being there was a working visa. But they were taking and seeking opportunities to share the gospel while they were there. They could have tried to go over there or taken a full-time wage, but their belief was if we did that, it would be an obstacle to the gospel. That the response from people around them would be, would be far less if they went there just as missionaries who were paid or supported by another church, then instead going there and working would be the most effective way to share the gospel. They would lay down that right that things would be harder for the sake of the gospel. And that's what Paul did. As they went out to these regions that had no Jewish background, that, that didn't read the Old Testament, that had these texts about the oxes and all of that kind of stuff or any of that sort of thing, they thought, we're going to go out there and we're just going to work and we'll give away the gospel for free for that sake. And then he sums it all up by saying this. In 9.19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul sums up his purpose in life in this. He says, I've been set free by the gospel, but I'm free so that I can serve as many people as possible, that I might win as many people for Christ as possible. That's his purpose. He says, that's everything. He says, everything else is up for grabs. All these good things or all these rights that I could claim, they're nothing. For me, I would lay all of them aside just that I might see as many people come to know hope and joy in Jesus as possible. See, if you are a Christian, you've been set free to serve people and to make disciples. That's what the gospel sets you free for. If you were, if you were in war, 
and your unit was ambushed, and you were shot, and you went unconscious, and you woke up in an enemy hospital, and you found that you'd been patched up, that you, as you become conscious, you realise that you were surrounded by you know, uh, enemy forces and medical sort of staff, what would the first question be that would pop in your mind? Surely the first question would be, why am I here and why am I alive? Why did they keep me alive? Why didn't they leave me out there? Why didn't I die? Why did they keep me alive? What do they want to do with me? That would be the question you would ask, wouldn't it? You'd think, what purpose is there for me being alive? In the same way, if this is the gospel, that Jesus didn't need you to save yourself, he died on the cross for you, more than that, you didn't make a great decision. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were stubborn to the core in your sin and he had to put his spirit in your heart that you might have faith in Jesus. So he did everything. If that's the case, why did he leave you here? If it's true that once you're a Christian, you can never not be a Christian, why isn't that once someone becomes a Christian, they just get zapped up to heaven? Why is it? Why are you still here? Well, the truth is the only possible reason is that we're here to see as many other people come to know the hope and joy, joy of Jesus as possible. That's the one thing that you can't do in heaven. The time has already run out by then. Christ has saved us and set us free and given us this time now to spread the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission. And Paul gets it. He understands it. Like, look, once you're a Christian, you know that I'm, I'm genuinely safe forever. The whole purpose of me is not just that I get across the line safely, but I take as many people with me as possible. And so he says, my purpose in this age is not to enjoy good things. He's like, look, I can miss out on things. I'll miss out on certain rights. I don't need those. The main reason I'm here, the main reason I've been set free is to serve as many people as possible and see as many one for Christ as possible before I go home. That's what he lives for. And more than that, he goes into the details about it. Look at what he writes about how he lives his life. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 23, he says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. He just went 11 out of 10 Jewish around his Jewish friends. <laughs> right? To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law, so that I might win those under the law. Getting very Dr. Seuss at this point. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. He says, look, I just, I laid down my life to see as many people come to know Jesus as possible. That's what I do. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those outside the law, I, I lived the way that they lived. I did everything except disobey Christ in order to see people come to know Jesus. He says, I laid down all kinds of rights, all kinds of good things I missed out on, just that I might see people know Christ. See, Paul knew what he was set free for, and he says, look, I missed out on all kinds of good things so that I might do the best thing. I remember years ago, at, at, um, when I was at college studying there, we had, we had a series of lectures um, with one particular a lecturer on sort of a preaching class. But I was also uh, serving at youth group, and, um, and there was a kid there who, who really needed to go and see a counsellor but was terrified of doing it. He'd been there once before. It went really badly. He didn't want to go back. And, um, and so we were working for quite a number of months to, to kind of get to the point where we could see a good counsellor and start to work through some things. 
And uh, he finally agreed to do it. And it was on during this preaching class that I was supposed to be at. And so I was like, look, I'll, the, the condition that he put on it was that he would go to the counselor if I took him and then took him home. So I was like, no problem, I'll do that. So I missed the first hour, got there for the second hour. And at the end of the kind of lectures, the, the lecturer came up to me and said, um, Jeremy, I noticed you came in late before. And I kind of explained sort of the, the background to what had happened. And then he sort of leaned in and he said, um, Jeremy, you know, the enemy of best is not bad. The enemy of best is good. Now, do you, do you catch what, what he's getting at with that phrase? The idea is that, like, sometimes you have to miss a good thing in order to do the best thing. So maybe you don't always take a kid to the counselor when you need to get to the preaching lecture. But as he, as he kind of said, you know, the whole good and best thing, I was thinking, yeah, that's right. I think I did the best. I made the call. <laughs> Thank you for affirming me, sir. But, um, but it's funny, though, that line ever since has kind of has stuck with me, though. That it is true, actually, that often the enemy of best is good. That the thing that distracts us from doing the very best thing is often a bunch of good things. And that's what Paul's saying here, isn't it? He's saying there are a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of rights that he laid aside. They were good things. There was nothing wrong with them. They weren't sin. They were things that even Jesus said was good. And he said, and yet, in order to see people come to know Jesus... You're going to need to miss out on some good things in order to do the very best thing. It's not going to be the case that as followers of Christ, we're going to be able to enjoy every good thing and be on mission to see as many people saved as possible at the same time. We're going to miss many good things in order to do the best thing. And who knows what it will be? But there are all kinds of good things that we may need to miss out on. It might mean living with less less faith. It's a good thing, it just may not be the best thing. It may be downtime. It's a good thing, just maybe not the best thing. might be nice food or, or, or more time to relax or whatever it is, but it will mean in order to see people come to know Jesus, it's going to mi- mean missing out on some good things in order to do the best thing. Because mission means missing out. And we know this, right? When you know that someone is going to be a missionary to another context, the first thing you think of is cost. There is always a cost, isn't there? They're going to uproot from all their friends and family. They're going to miss out on work opportunities. If they have a family and they go into another contest, it's, it's going to cost, isn't it? Their kids are going to miss out on the education that they would have back at home. So if they come back, they're going to be behind. That has to be reckoned with. Mission means missing out. And that's why Paul finishes in this chapter where he finishes. Look at what he says in 24 and beyond. He says, Do you not know... Then in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Paul says, living this way for him, living as a servant of all to see as many people come to know Christ as possible, is not something that is a natural default setting. He says, I do this on purpose. I run it like a race. I, I discipline my body in order to do this. He says, it doesn't just happen. He says, he runs after it. So he's saying, you know, athletes exercise self-control in order to win a prize. But how much more for those who are looking to win souls? 
He's saying it's not going to happen by accident. You're not going to wake up one day and be like, wow, I led like 20 people to Jesus. I, just, I wasn't even trying. I just sort of fell into it. Paul's like, no, no, no. Instead, he's like, I, I do it on purpose. I don't box as one beating the air. I don't run my life like I'm just trying to do anything and going after this thing and that. He says, I go after one thing. I'm here to serve and I'm here to see people come to know Christ. Like an athlete, as a missionary, you're focused. Because the default setting is to not serve people and to not make disciples. And I know this for myself. Even just this week, we were, uh, I, was at, I was at home. Mel was out teaching dance. Mel was my wife. And, um, and I was looking after the kids, sort of getting dinner ready. And the, the doorbell rings. And um, there's some kids up the street who are great kids. And their folks are, aren't actually around, so they're being raised by a relative. And they're really nice kids. And they love spending time in our house because of the place that they're at. There's, like, the TV's always on, so they just love being around and hanging out with the kids. And the doorbell rings, and it's about 6 o'clock. And I go out there, and it's, and it's the kids, and they're like, can we come in and play? And it was, look, I was, you know, it was the end of the day. I was kind of getting things ready. Mel and I weren't both there, so it was a bit chaotic. And I was just like, oh, look, sorry, kids, not today. And I don't know, kind of fumbled through some sort of excuse. And sent them away. You should have seen their little faces. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly right. Anyway, um, but when I did that afterwards, like, I, and I was talking to Mel about it, I was like, I, I felt so bad, because look, at, in that moment, look, I was tired, but like, I'm always tired, like, everyone's always whinging about how tired, there's never going to be a time where I'm like, I feel really energized, I'm ready to serve right now, it's, and, but it was, it was an opportunity there to do it, and I, you know what, I just felt like having an easier night. But here's one thing that's helpful in terms of this story. Was that I, couldn't, I couldn't tell that story this morning, even though it was in here. I wrote this last week. Because uh, yesterday they came around and feeling convicted about, like, look, I need to have them around. Like, it's the middle of the day, it's the downtime, all that sort of stuff. So they came in, hung out with their kids. And then this morning, I couldn't share that illustration because the whole family turned up unexpectedly. And it was amazing. They're becoming friends with our kids. They're getting to know them. But a lot of it's going to mean them sticking around at, at awkward times, at times when you feel like just having some downtime. And that's not a bad thing. And there will be times where we've got to set boundaries, otherwise they'll be around all the time. But it's the case that sometimes you miss out on good things in order to do the best things. We're there to share the gospel with our street, and part of that is going to be having people in and out of our house all the time. But Paul says we're set free to serve, to be intentional about it. It's not going to happen by accident. We need to be ready for those opportunities and to embrace them, rather than just to hope that it might happen. And so I don't know what it would be for you, but maybe it means planning ahead. I mean, thinking ahead of time, look, how am I going to spend my next week well and engaging with people and making opportunities to share Jesus, whatever it is for you, but that we might not look like people who are, who are boxing the air, but who are running after a prize, who know what Jesus is worth and what, he, what it means to know him and who want to share that with as many people as possible. So we just reviewed our 2018 vision to see 100 people come to know Christ and we're not on track. And that's going to mean those two things that Gav was talking about. It means giving and it means joining. It's going to mean laying down financial things for the mission of Christ here at City Light going forward and for those external organizations that we support. And that's going to mean sacrifice. It's going to mean serving in ministries here that build missional communities and Sunday gatherings, our two main ways of seeing people come to know Jesus. And that's going to mean time. It will mean sacrifice. But although it's hard, it's worth it. Because if you notice what Paul says, he says, I do all these things not because I have to. What does he say? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. 
He says, it's a joy to do this. I do this because I want to know blessing. It should be the case that the Christian life following Christ is marked by these two things, sacrifice and blessing. If it's all sacrifice, that's just empty religion. That's just duty. That's just the idea that God makes us do things because making us feel sad makes him feel happy. That doesn't work out. That's not the gospel. But if it's all blessing, that's just prosperity gospel. Really, the Christian life is marked by sacrifice and blessing, missing out on things and yet not missing out on joy. Missing out on many good things in order to enjoy the best things. If you know anything about David Livingstone and his life, it it marks these things. David Livingstone was a a Scottish man who was a pioneer medical missionary uh, with the London Missionary uh, uh, Society. And one of the things he was known for was exploring Africa. Uh, And one of the heroes of sort of the late 19th century. He was kind of a rags-to-riches story, not in terms that he didn't become financially very wealthy, but that he, was, he, he went from being uh, nothing to sort of someone who was pretty significantly known. But one of his big kind of uh, ambitions was to discover the source of the Nile, which is something we obviously take for granted these days. But listen to, to why it is that he wanted to do that. He, and this is, I'm quoting him, he says, The Nile sources are valuable only as means of opening my mouth with power among men. It is this power which I hope to remedy an immense evil, by which he was talking about the East African Arab Swahili slave trade. That he believed if he discovered the source to the Nile, he would have authority to speak into those who had power over that slave trade and to speak against it, and devote his life to it. He died exploring Africa and sharing the gospel, and reflecting on his life and on all the ordinary things in, in sort of suburban life that he missed out on. He says this, have a look at this. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in a healthy act- sorry, is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in a healthy activity, in the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of the glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which is to be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. That's his reflection toward the end of his life. That's his reflection on a life laid down for Jesus was that it wasn't a sacrifice. It was for joy. It wasn't some religious duty. It was for the glory of Jesus. And it compares anything you miss now, compares nothing to the glory to be revealed on the final day. We're called to sacrifice in order that we might know deep gospel joy, that we might share in the blessings of the gospel with those who come to know Christ. We need to give and serve and make disciples. We are set free to be servants of all. And we pray that the Spirit would do this work in our hearts for us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the one who sets us free and free completely. That the gospel is good news to the poor and the broken and blind and needy. 
And in the gospel, we find the healing that we so deeply need, and not just now for this life, but for all eternity. That in Jesus, your judgment has burned, that we may never face that judgment. That we are set free to be sons and daughters of you. And we pray, Father, the gospel would teach us to be servants, to serve others, to consider others' needs above our own, to think of others more than ourselves, that we might imitate our Savior and our King who's who shed his blood on our behalf. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do this, that you might be deeply glorified in your church. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.